Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. Uh, today, we're doing our second book club on the podcast. Uh, over the last summer, we did one on Minds Online, and I really like talking to other people about the book, so uh, here we are again. Uh, this time, the book is a national bestseller titled Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum. Um, some of you may have read this book uh, several, several years ago. Uh, it was first published in 1997, and Dr. Tatum revised and updated it uh, in 2017. So we're here to discuss the book um, and really just discuss a lot of other things that have you know, spurred from the book. Uh, I'm joined today by Dr. Clancy Seymour from Canisius College and Harry Reed, one of Clancy's students uh, finishing up, uh, about to go into a student teaching in a couple semesters. Uh, so thank you both for coming on to chat. Good to see you both. For sure. Hey, thanks for having us, Risto. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So full disclosure, uh, this podcast about the book isn't going to be a great substitute for actually reading the book because there's so much in the book um, and we don't really have a very set plan of where this conversation is going to go. So we're going to not cover everything of the book, obviously. Uh, with that said, um, let's get into it. I'll, I'll occasionally throw Harry under the bus, but I'll always throw uh, Clancy under the bus. So let me go with you first. Uh, when I invited you to read this book, why did you say yes? Um, well, I think uh, the opportunity, I mean, first and foremost, the opportunity to uh, collaborate with you, Risto, and some of the others that you invited is always uh, engaging. And uh, I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you over the last year, year and a half. And so it was a nice opportunity to, to collaborate again. So that was certainly inviting but then on top of it as well we've been going through uh you know some difficult times from a social context and i thought it was an important uh um initiative to get involved with for sure and so harry you got an email from uh from clancy your your professor and said hey do you want to read this this book what what kind of made you jump out and go yeah that's something that i want to do on top of everything else you're doing in in school yeah, yeah, I kind of had a, a little bit of a two-pronged approach as well to, to Dr. Seymour's. Um, I thought that it's good to get more involved in, you know, like my major. Obviously, this was a little bit on, you know, a little bit extra. So I thought, oh well, you know, there's there's little things that I can do, like you know, in in college still to you know have a presence and, and be able to do do things that are outside of just classes. And then, um, you know, when I got the book and started getting into it, I thought that. You know, it's going to be a, a different perspective, something that I wasn't used to and something that, you know, is, is good because, you know, as, as people in general, you know, when we get out of our comfort zone, it's really when we begin to like learn and progress. So that's why that's what kind of kept me kept me going here. Well, I'm happy you're here. I'm happy both of you are here. Um, I'd, I'd like to lo learn a little bit about where you where you grew up and how you grew up uh, in you know, six or seven years ago was the first time in U.S. history that the majority of school-aged children were children of color. So Latinx, Black, Asian, American Indian, multiracial. And so we're obviously getting very, very diverse. And the teaching occupation is not getting as diverse as fast. So we're definitely not keeping up. We're still about 83, 80% white and teachers. So I'm wondering what what was kind of the demographic makeup of your neighborhood where you grew up or where you live now? Has are the schools diverse that you're going into? Are they predominantly white? So um, let's start with you, Clancy. Where 
where did you grow up? What were there? Was there a lot of diversity where you grew up or, or not so much? Um, thanks for, so I, uh, I grew up in a suburb of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Brampton, Ontario, it was called, uh, you know, uh, now, uh, Brampton is, is very diverse. Uh, when I was uh, there, I, I went to school there mid, uh, you know, if, if you think about high school, I, I mid, uh, mid to late eighties and early nineties, I finished. So, um, probably not, uh, obviously not as diverse as it is, as it is now, um, the metropolitan Toronto area is one of the most cosmopolitan areas in uh, in the in, in Canada, uh, for that matter. So, um, yeah, I would say back when I was a high school student, definitely not as diverse, for sure. What about you, you Harry? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, Waynesville, New York, which is you know mainly mainly whiter um, area. I grew up uh, my neighborhood was you know predominantly white people as far as i know it's i haven't been you know through the whole neighborhood and everything but mostly white people were there um and then for uh as far as school went i went to a uh, small private school for um most of my years and then i finished at um waynesville south which is one of the uh the like public schools in waynesville and um cca was uh was less racially um diverse it was a private school um and there was more white kids there but um, I would say that CCA was maybe less racially, like segregated, just kind of socially. You know, I mean, at, at my, at my, there was black kids at my, you know, lunch table growing up and through high school. And then when I went to South, I didn't really notice it too much. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was there more, just because there was more people in general, more, more diverse. Um, yeah. So ma- mainly, mainly I've been around, you know, people of my own, my own skin color. Yeah, growing up. Yeah, and I I would say the same. I mean, I, I grew up in Finland and did my ele- elementary school in Finland, and that's a very you know very white uh, you know country in general. Um, it's getting more diverse in in the last couple decades. But you know, when I grew up in Southern California, I thought it was very very racially diverse, but there wasn't actually like a lot of socioeconomic diversity. So like in the schools that I went to. Yes, they were somewhat racially diverse, but like uh, at the same time, a lot of different races lived in a very affluent area and therefore there wasn't as much, you know, but I think uh, it's interesting in in places like Southern California, they are very diverse in the sense that there's a lot of immigration that goes into Southern California. And even though you live in affluent families, uh, live in areas, you do have a service industry that services that affluent area. So it's the busboys that work at restaurants, the dishwashers that work, the, the, you know, landscapers, the house cleaners, and those, there is a big socioeconomic gap uh, in between them. And I went to a public school in that area. And I, like, now that I think of it, because I, I haven't really reflected on this up until I got to a university position where I'm teaching classes on social cultural issues, I looked at things like we had in high school, a legitimate race fight. Like we had like a Latino versus black group fight that I witnessed that I'm like now thinking, holy crap. Like these are, these are the things that I just looked at like, oh, they're fighting. But now to think that there's so many like under rooted like issues in that community of 
like a race fight in like two the year 2000 in southern california like it was so it was so strange now that i think back on it so uh and i think that's what the what the book is all about for me it's it's forcing you to give you giving you prompts to reflect on your past giving you prompts to reflect on your school or like the school that you're going to go in and do your student teaching in harry or you know Canisius College, right? So, like, how how is that as a as an organization diverse? Are they are they pushing the envelope in certain issues, or you know? So, um, I don't know if that's more of a question, but I like it. Did you have similar experience growing up, Clancy? Yeah, I, you know, uh, and I agree with you immensely, uh, Rister. The, the book really lets you uh, reflect. Uh, and, and think back to your experiences, uh, and I can identify um, and, and, and certainly resonate with the author and a lot of the um, experiences she articulates in terms of just what she describes and, and providing perspective. I think that was uh, extremely powerful in the um, in the book itself. And then, you know, like you said, you know, you know my experiences are the same as you and Harry's. Uh, uh, looking back, um, you know, uh, even even at Canisius College, something we continue to strive at the college is to is is to become more diverse um, in not only from from a student context, from a fa- from a faculty and staff context as well, for sure. Yeah, we I mean we at uh, Mason we have um, you know, at, at all the universities I've worked at have really talked about hiring diversely. You know, looking at all the all candidates, and you know, we we are just in the middle of a search for a racial and um, like race and diversity uh, anti-racism position in the College of Education that will look to start initiatives, do research in this specific area that could come from sports rec and tourism, could come from kinesiology, could come from physical education or education in general, and you know, we have a president who has pushed this initiative and and that's the only hiring that we're doing because hiring has been frozen across the university really um so these are positions that they're still really pushing and it made me think i was like okay well think about our like this is something that i didn't really think about but our department is all white you know and so like we can't hire necessarily a person uh, right now, because there's no like tenure track or full term position available, but you know adjuncts are being replaced and things like that. So I think that those are things that could help in hiring. Um, I I also wonder with you know hiring at the elementary school level or at the middle school or high school level of how are those positions being filled? Is it coming down from the district of like hey you need to think about diversity right because we're still 83 percent white in in teaching so are we able to you know change that or is it the 83 percent of white people are rehiring the people and they're not like breaking the breaking the cycle so have you seen that like uh are there initiatives at Canisius or you know at other local schools out there yeah the uh I am optimistic. You know, my wife, I think I've told you before, Risto is a, is a Buffalo public school health and physical education teacher. So one of the second biggest school district 
uh, in New York State. And I, I know that uh, when they are hiring, uh, that they obviously put a priority on making sure that uh, diversity is uh, an important uh, factor to consider. Uh, obviously, uh, children uh, do better when they're able to identify with their role models, right? And we have to, so we have to think about all those different things for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering about the, the social network question. So in the, in the book, they talked about this national poll that found that white American adults, uh, so 75% have social networks, so friends, neighbors, coworkers that are entirely white without the presence of any people of color. And the, the person who was in charge of this um, poll said the chief obstacle to having an intelligent or even intelligible conversation across the racial divide is that on average, white Americans talk mostly to other white people. And I will give a disclosure here that there are three white people on this call that are talking about this. So, you know, although, again, we invited a ton more people to get on this call, I'm wondering, what is your social network at school, at work, and has this social network shaped your worldview? What do you think, Carrie? Can you comment on like um, who are the people that you are with at school or in communities or schools? Yeah, I would say, I mean, mostly, mostly, you know, white at this point. A lot of my friends from school, both my, you know, circles, mostly white. I mean, I have a few friends of, of different races, kids that I've known for a long time, um, but I would say predominantly mostly white, you know, yeah. as well. That's a great question. And it's funny, Risto, too, because uh, I, I put together a set of notes from uh, my reading and I have that very same quote that you do uh, certainly highlighted. And uh, I think that's an important po uh, point to consider. And, you know, it, when it comes to me, I, I do think um, I have, um, you know, somewhat of a diverse network of colleagues, friends, relationships. Uh, I think it could certainly be better when it comes to uh, racial diversity. Um, but when it comes to diversity now, I've, I've also learned that that means many things, right? It means, as you mentioned, SES, uh, sexual orientation. It means uh, um, you know, all sorts of things, uh, uh, background and, and, and ethnicity. And where, you know, I, I, I always laugh with you that I'm a Canadian as well. And so it means all sorts of things, international, you know, you, you, you have roots as well. So I think I'm, I'm much better uh, than I once was, but I can certainly continue to improve. No question about it. Now, do you think that that social network has shaped your worldview? Well, I, I think I think you're always, uh, you know, influenced by the people that you uh, confide in, you know, that you are close to. So I think we're always influenced by those. Yes. Uh, but I think it's also uh, important for us to to recognize your blind spots. Right. So mm -hmm. I think the question you ask is an important one. Uh, if we are in a situation where uh, we could get better when it comes to a a more worldly view, then we have to recognize that we have these blind spots. Yeah, and I think that's that's more more so the the push for the question is, you know, 
is is your friend group experience like pushing your worldview and if you think about it then you got to look okay who, who is my friend group who are the people that i hang out with or who are the people that i associate with when you start really thinking about it you know is it diverse because for sure the people who you hang around with are shaping your worldview and that is why as a parent of like if you're a, have a teenage kid who starts hanging out with quote unquote the wrong crowd parents are really worried they're like okay well i know that these people do x y and z and i don't want my you know my kid associating with that group of people who are doing illegal activities or something like that so definitely a friend group shapes that and i think that that's the issue with you know part of growing up is how comfortable are you speaking up how comfortable are you saying when you're like that's wrong and that's that's not something that i agree with but it's very tough to do that as a teenager but i think you know the book talked a lot, a lot about having that fear of speaking up because you lose your friends right or you lose people in your direct family when you you know kind of un start understanding what like like the they had an uh, example of a of a family gathering of you know a person that went to college took the class from this from this professor who wrote the book and then came home during Thanksgiving and started all of a sudden hearing all of these racist jokes or these stereotypes that were that were being passed around the the dinner table and it's not like they just started that month saying those jokes but it's I, the realization of like oh like there's a lot of yeah. racism in my family that I just never really thought about. They were, they were almost desensitized to it previously, but then because of their training and their new outlook, um, you know, they're, they're much more sensitive uh, to that. That's important. And, you know, the other thing, Risto, uh, you have three, yes, white gentlemen on the call, but you also have three white gentlemen that, uh, you know, are influenced by physical education and influenced by sport. Uh, you know, it's not just about the network, right? It's not just about the friends. Um, what about, you know, you come from a wrestling background. I come from a hockey, uh, you know, predominant ice hockey background, a little bit of football, a little bit of rugby as well. But, you know, if I think about hockey, you know, there, the sports itself also play a role in this discussion in terms of at least, uh, you know, thinking about, social context. So how does, how does hockey play a part? Well, I mean, I, I, what I'm referring to is that, you know, a, a sport like hockey is not as diverse as a sport like say football or baseball. Right. So that's something to consider. So when I think about my exposure to uh, a diverse a network, uh, a, a, a worldly view, different perspectives, when, when I think about where I spent a lot of my time as a youngster playing hockey, which is predominantly white, um, there's an example where I may not have as, as, a, as worldly of a view as I would have if I played a different sport, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that there's certain issues with hockey based on socioeconomic status. And so it's, there's no yeah. issue with getting into hockey if you're any race, it's partially like if you grew up in a place that has hockey as an opportunity it's usually costly because of the ice time because of the gear because you know a, a five-year-old that learns how to play in 
when they're in sixth grade or when they turn six, you got to get new skates, you got to get new pads, you got to get new. And then when they turn nine, you're like, okay, let's do this again. And, you know, so it's, it's a very expensive right. sport. And I think certain things like golf, golf has had this issue for, for a very long time is that, that they're not diverse. Sure. Well, why? Well, because you have to pay green fees. It doesn't cost a lot of money to get clubs necessarily if you get like hand-me-downs or something like that, but then the green fees. And then when you get good, you're like, I want my own clubs or I've, I've grown, so I can't use these clubs that are meant. So I think there's a lot of stuff that overlaps in physical education here. And I think that, you know, PE in general or sports in general, like I think that those are things that we need to, we need to look at as well. Uh, there was a point in that book that they talked about a research study and it was about um, mostly African-American kids being bussed in from Boston to a, to a uh, school. And they did this research study that they pulled kids out of physical education to talk about the school segregation project. And they, it, it just pissed me off because I was like, wait, this is exactly what we talk about. It's we as physical education can be that change agent. Now, history shows that we haven't been that change agent as much as we could be. But literally, they pulled kids from physical education to go in and sit in a room to talk about the school segregation. And I'm sitting there going, why not use physical education as that vehicle? Like, this is, this is the problem of like, okay, well, we're marginalized subject, so let's just push PE aside and let's pull these kids. And they, they took the black kids that were bused into the school and then they took the black kids from that class and took them aside and then they had the white kids together doing PE while the black kids were talking about school segregation. And, you yeah. know, like, they have, they reported positive stuff like results so you know they didn't have a control group what if it was done in pe would it have done the same thing would it have benefited the white kids in that school in that pe class to have that conversation with them now we can go down this road in that in the book because there's some like different viewpoints of i mean look at the topic of the book like why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria we'll get to that but like i just see things like this that i feel like are way like missed opportunities and maybe that pe teacher wasn't there that had been taught advocacy in the teacher education program and when the researcher says hey we're going to take these black kids out of your uh out of your class the teacher should have stood up and said no you're not you want to bring my whole entire class You, you come and have a conversation in my class but I'm not giving up my time of teaching a valuable subject for you to go in and do a research project. So. I agree. Not recognizing that the, the potential benefit that physical education has uh, comparatively to other disciplines and in that social context, you know, I, I, I agree. I was, I was captured by that as well. Disappointed. Yeah. Harry, any, uh, what are some things that, uh, popped out at you coming in from being a pre-service teacher, being an undergraduate student, going into this profession as a teacher down the line? Like, what are some things that kind of popped up at you that were, were interesting? 
I think just like the overall perspective, um, I, I just remember as I was reading, I always just kind of like you know, finish a few pages and I would just think back, okay, now, okay, they, you know, they, they, she gave like this study or like talked about this story or, you know, mentioned this stat. And I always just came back to wondering, all right, now, how can we bridge that gap? And then I then I mean we were just you were talking about earlier had you know fit that as a change agent and fit that as like a you know a, a, a possible vehicle for this change. I think that as you know a future phys ed teacher, I, and I mean I, I come from a, a background of phys ed teachers myself. My parents are, my grandfather was, so I can I see phys ed as as that agent which maybe you know others wouldn't see, and I think that we have a unique opportunity to um, you know pursue that change because phys ed isn't your average class where you sit down and you just listen to lecture. You can, you're, I mean, as a student, you're the one doing the thing. And I think that, you know, the more we, we, um, pursue, you know, togetherness and inclusion, the more, you know, we can, we can progress as a, as a nation with that. Yeah. It makes me, uh, makes me think back to, um, we had, a a peak collaborative call about the standards revisions, um, a little while ago and and Kevin Patton from CSU Chico uh, I had invited him on to speak and he talked about to not forget physical education as the only subject that focuses on the physical so I think that there are there are definitely things that we can do but we need to always remember that you know we're the only subject matter that works on the physical aspect of the education process and I think that there's there's definitely value in taking time to sit down in physical education and have these conversations. But I think the limitation is that, you know, I'll go down the street here to Fairfax County Public Schools and I know a sixth grade teacher who sees their kids for 60 minutes on Fridays. Like, how much, how much can you get done on race and racism? And so I, I think that that teacher will go forward and go, okay, I need to teach. I need to teach. I need to get them physically active. I need to teach all these things. So it's very hard for me to convince that person to give 30 minutes of their 60 minutes to sit down and have a conversation about race and racism. Now, I think that the best move is to teach them how to integrate those content, integrate that stuff. So you're not taking time away from the physical activity, but reinforcing those uh, those stereo like, or reinforcing the battling of those stereotypes and trying to figure out the integration piece because I think we are a physical education space and I think that we can't forget that and I know that there's a lot of really good research and researchers who are working on issues of social justice and I think that the future of actually making that change is through integration and it's not through isolated let's have this conversation because at the end of the day, if we had PE five days a week, 30, 45 minutes a day, absolutely. But in reality, I don't think that that's happening across the U.S. as much as we would hope to. So, Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, you know, and then you add in the other factors that are certainly uh, weighing on social emotional factors and things like that. There's a lot to fit in, no question about it. Yeah. Um, so I, I did this study, uh, not study, I did this <laughs> uh, warm-up activity for, for my sociocultural class this semester uh, based on this book, 
and it was this idea if you asked a complete if you asked somebody complete the sentence i am blank space so like i am something how do you identify and i did this word cloud um which is basically on poll everywhere you can go on and set this up and just have students type in single word answers so i said only single word answers if you need to hyphenate it so it's it's coming together so the more people put a certain word, the bigger that word becomes on the screen. And so I had them put this up because in the book it said that, um, you know, what would you write if you had 60 seconds to write it? And I was curious of what this actually looked like in practice. And the book said that things like white and things like male are not going to come up as much or haven't come up as much in research. So I wanted to kind of test that. And I was right, like those are very, if that name or if that word even came up, it was very, very, very tiny because a lot of white males don't identify as white, right? Yeah, give a census, right? I'm going to click white or what is your race? I'm going to say white, but what is my, you know, gender, male, right? But it's not something that I talk about openly because... You know, the book talks about that is not something that you have been uh, like oppressed of. Like, it's not hard in this society to be white. Most of the privileges that are rewarded, you know, unjustly, you know, part of a racist system, the whole lot. But we benefit from being white, whether and again, I think that that is a hard thing sometimes to teach a student who has grown up privileged it's very hard for them to cross that barrier to understand, oh, yes, I do see where this, like, you know, white privilege is coming from. But um, I'm wondering, would, what would you think if, if you had, you know, that in your classes? Do you, do you agree with that understanding of, like, that there's not a lot of, um, you know, people who are identifying as that because it's not something that's being... You know, pushed down. I, I agree, Risto. Page one hundred and two. I, I, uh, I wrote it down too as a point that I found really interesting. That again, because uh, it, it really speaks to the privilege question and a privilege piece. The fact that um, people who are white don't have that um, that additional constraint. To think about um and so they and, and and then you add in the piece about male uh you, you know we t we take for granted these features that are obviously allow for a, a privileged status and uh i found it really interesting that others that are that are or, or i guess use that term the uh, others often use often do identify because they're constantly Facing those constraints, uh, so I, I, I don't I don't envision that if you were to do the same thing in my class or uh, other places where uh, there might be uh, you know white predominance, I don't imagine there would be much difference. I think it would be similar. Sure. Yeah. And and the other in quotes, as much as you can do a quote in a podcast, uh, you know the yeah. other is reminded that they are the other so much more exactly. than we are reminded that we are white, right? Yeah, like somebody would 
could say like in a conversation like well you're a white male that that's why you get this but i don't think that that conversation is happening across the board right i think if you're growing up latinx you know we we talk about this in our class and we have some students who identify uh, that way and you know they grew up with racial slurs yelled at them in soccer games and playing in in the field and it's like when you think back as a as a white kid growing up and and playing sports especially if you're isolated in a sport that resembles a lot of you know people that look like you you don't grow up re- being reminded that you're white so you just kind of go through your kind of daily grind and they uh the book talked about this other book waking up white by debbie irving and so she talked about not understanding her own racial identity and she was 48 when she wrote the book and uh, she said that the way i understood race was for other people brown and black skinned people don't get me wrong if you put a census in my hands i would know to check white or caucasian it's more that i thought all of those categories like asian african-american american indian latino were the real races i thought white was the raceless race just plain normal the one against which all others are measured. So do you do you feel like like what Irving talked about is that white is the racist raceless race or just plain normal to what others are measured against? Has that been something that you kind of connected with, whether that was earlier on in your life or just kind of growing up? What do you think, Carrie? Well, I, I mean uh I I uh, definitely became much more uh, in tune with uh, the author, particularly you, you raised the point like, uh, you know, it, and again, I, I want to use the term in quotes, normal, you know, everything is compared to white. You, you, you use, you reference measured to white. And I think that is troubling. And, uh, you know, at the end of the book, uh, the, uh, the author re- uh, mentions a, a, a documentary, The Color of Fear. And I was, uh, I, I needed to go take a look at that. And uh, it's pre- pretty riveting uh, uh, TV, I guess you could say, a pretty riveting, uh, a pretty riveting documentary. Take a look at it. And uh, one gentleman who uh, speaks about uh, the idea of being American or being human is always from the context of being white versus uh, so much more. And I think that speaks to what you're, what you're referring to. I, I, I don't, I think we, I think it's dangerous and I think we've learned that. And I, I think that's the message that we have to, that, that I got uh, garnered from the book is that uh, this idea of uh, we don't see color or um, the, 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 uh, white being what you said the raceless uh you know approach i i I just i think that's a dangerous uh place to go and i and i do see uh i really identified with the author towards the end when she she really did point to the fact that oftentimes we're using white as the measuring stick and i think that's problematic what do you think harry and we'll get to the colorblind uh piece next but what do you think about the like the author talking about how race was considered like this plain or normal or the default. 
Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I definitely like resonated with that. I mean, when I was like younger, obviously, you know, and I had, I had friends of all races forever, but I mean, sometimes fortunately, but also, you know, sometimes unfortunately history seems to be, you know, written by the victors and in terms of like, you know, the race war, you know, our collective race here has, you know, kind of trampled on the others. So we kind of like, you know, another air quote here, we kind of get to choose that as the normal. And I think that we have to, you know, we as a, as a race, I, mean, I don't like, you know, call, you know, calling out a whole race because obviously everyone's different and every person has a different mindset, but I guess to, you know, um, you know, surmise us as a race, we have to stop fighting the war, you know, instead of like, instead of just, you know, trying to perpetuate that, we got to just, you know, include everyone and stop, you know, stop writing the, you know, the, the narrative mm -hmm. because yeah, sure. Like, you know, in back in history, um, you know, like the race war was, you know, one, at least in America for the most part, won by white people. And that's, that's the war we have to stop fighting. I'd say. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the, the best example that I remember from like the active passive racism, right. Of like understanding that you are benefiting as a white person in this society from being white, uh, was this idea of, you know, those long conveyor belt walking conveyor belts, moving sidewalks that you'd have in, in an airport to get you by it. Mm -hmm. They made this analogy of that. You are on there and the, the racist society is kind of this like moving conveyor belt that you can just like, walk onto the moving sidewalk you're actively being engaged right so like whether you're not whether you're not doing it whether you're just like standing there right you're moving forward you're getting the benefits of the society and like they made this example of like you know active racism would be a ku klux klan member walking on that conveyor belt they are moving their feet and walking and they're moving faster towards it a passive racism is you know standing on there not not doing it not minding you know just minding your own business and kind of just going forward but you're still benefiting it you know and you know the anti-racist behavior is turning against or walking against it uh, which is very hard right uh, but they talked about how you know you are as a white person you are benefiting from racism and i think if you told me that 10 years ago i would i would say no like no way like and that was how i you know, before reading, before like having these critical conversations, I would probably disagree with you. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not benefiting from it. But they had this, uh, you know, example of an apartment denied to a person of color, right, based on their race, and they were the first ones there. They put a asked to put a deposit down. They're like, uh, let me run your background check and let me do this. And then a white person comes in and says, Hey, I'd like this apartment, and they get that apartment. You never knew that that black person was denied that apartment before you, right? Because the real estate agent's not gonna say that, but you knowingly or unknowingly are benefiting from this, um, from, from a structural racist society. So I, um, I think it, it just kind of like, it was a, a really interesting understanding. So what do you, what do you think about that of, um, do you feel like there are these like, um, you know, issues with, you know, not acknowledging that 
and that's a loaded question. I don't know why I asked that, but do you like how do you feel about that in in general of you know having this passive or active racism? Um, do you see that happening in your schools, in your communities, and just in general? Well, I mean, there's no question. You're, you're right on that. Uh, you know, systemically, there are issues that um, are pretty are pretty astounding, and we have to. You know, it, it, it's a challenge for for us three to try to resolve those. That's for sure. But uh, you know, I, I I agree. You know, and and, and you know, it, it makes it makes people feel uncomfortable. You mentioned ten years ago. You know, reading that makes you feel uncomfortable because I think there are times that we are on the conveyor belt and we're not moving. We're not contributing to uh, the racist uh, narrative. But because we're not doing anything, we're there. Uh, you know, it, you, you mentioned passive versus active. Perhaps we're passive. And I think it it is a little sobering at times to re- recognize that, there are, you know, that we are sometimes passive. And we need to move to a more active anti-racist approach. Uh, that was something I gathered from it. And it takes a lot of work. Uh, but I think there are times that, you know, uh, that all of us are, are on that conveyor belt at times passive as opposed to being active on the other side. Yeah. And they talked about passive racism also being you being in the room when somebody says a racial joke and you don't laugh but you still stay in that room and you don't call other people out. And I think that is incredibly difficult to do in a, uh, in a peer group that you really, especially when you're younger, when you really care about being socially accepted. And when you see everybody else laugh, you kind of look around and you're like, this is not the time for me to speak up. I might lose friends. And then, you know, those are, those are tough things to discuss, but I think, you know, they, they talked about in the book of raising resistors of how you can educate yeah. yourself if necessary to, you know, for your children. And I think for us as, you know, future physical educators or teacher educators, raising resistors of like acknowledging that, that, Hey, it's okay for you to speak up because people who are making comments like this are doing damage. They're doing this X, Y, Z. Um, so I'm wondering what uh, what your both of your opinions are on you know raising resistors as a as a teacher not not necessarily as a parent and Clancy you can speak to that as well but you know what is it as a as a teacher what kind of you know call to action that we've we've been given? Well, I you're right on. Um... You know, the author talks about how, uh, from a parent context, how, uh, you, you know, you can uh, teach, the, you know, I, I think she uses, an, a, you know, a, a story about reading uh, with the child and pointing out language that could be considered problematic. And uh, I found that to be particularly moving and inspiring, too. Uh, certainly makes you uh, think about how you can do a better job as a parent when it comes to these issues. From a teaching standpoint, I think, um, you know, raising resistors is a, a very good point. Uh, Risto, I love it. Um, I, I think it starts with recognizing in teaching, uh, you know, in a situation like us at Canisius where we are uh, still, you know, predominantly white classrooms, we need to then start with 
recognizing privilege, right? And teaching students about their privilege and, and getting past uh, the denial that privilege exists, you know? Uh, so I think it starts there. Uh, and, uh, and then hopefully, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, I think physical education has a wonderful opportunity and, and can be a wonderful contributor in this. Um, but I think it starts with recognizing um, privilege and, and teaching about privilege to our peak candidates. Yeah. Uh, so that if they can get past that, then the next steps, I think, are going to be more fruitful. Harry, what do you think in, in looking at your future career as a, as a PE teacher? Like, how do you feel that, that, that term raising resistors kind of resonates? Yeah, I, I like I like the term. Um, it, it reminds me of like when I was in school myself. I believe it was middle school. They did a workshop for me. It was just the the you know, like administration or guidance lady, whatever. Um, you would you just during lunch grab a couple of us, and then the next week, a couple of us, and uh, just teaching us about like anti-bullying tactics. And I mean, if you think about like bullying and racism are kind of like a hand-in-hand topic. It's you know, same kind of tactics used for both. And um, I would definitely like to, um, you know, do that. And maybe, maybe, you know, if I end up being a health teacher, I might have more time on my hands. Like you said, in, in phys ed class, it's hard to take time away from, you know, the, the psychomotor and, and start to, you know, talk about the, the cognitive or effective there. Um, but I would definitely like to, you know, integrate proper values as well as, you know, helping kids, you know, refrain from, from bad ones. Um, and then, and then the whole like rate, you know, um, recognizing your privilege thing. That's, that's definitely something that I've like not struggled with, but had to notice it until really honestly, until I started reading this book, because I just, there was no alternative. I didn't really even realize I'd have heard the term and stuff, but I wasn't really, you know, too motivated to, to learn because, I mean, I remember, and I forget where it was in the book, but she said that there was somebody who wrote a journal um, after taking her class and this guy said, um, I see that the system works in my favor, so why would I want mm-hmm. to change it? And that's what, that's what we as, you know, educators or future educators, my voice, that's what we don't want. We don't want people to recognize it and then just laissez-faire hands off be like oh well it works you know because obviously it doesn't work for everyone and that's what we want to we want to bring yeah and and the book also and that's a that's a great uh quote to pull out because i remember reading that as well and there's definitely going to be students like that you know there's definitely going to be students that look at it and go well it's benefiting me so why does it matter and there's a whole like part that the book goes into about the cost of racism and you know, I, I think right. I wrote down somewhere that what is the cost of racism to physical education, right? Because we talk about cost of racism and we can pull this into like this neoliberal idea of like everything's market driven, like the cost of racism is X. These people who, you know, get sideswiped for this job and another type of person gets that job due to racism, it devalues this community. And so there's like this snowball effect and there's a, a there's a lot of cost like if you think about money wise that people have shown that the cost of racism is very steep to the economy but i wonder what is the cost of racism to or white silence to physical education i think that there's there's certainly a that's a very heavy question 
Um, but I wonder if you have any initial reactions to, to that. Well, it's, uh, it's funny, Risto. Great minds think alike because the, the question that I wanted to raise was, uh, you know, it's an ex- I do think it's an exciting time for the profession. We've, uh, uh, we're developing almost a resurgence with, uh, with p- teaching positions available. Uh, but where are the teaching positions available? Like, you know, the past several semesters, years, it's been uh, it, it's been very promising for my candidates to get teaching positions. But where are those teaching positions available? They're uh, available in high needs areas, urban centers. Uh, you know, so what is the cost? Uh, you know, you mentioned steep. You know, the cost if if we can't uh sensitize peak candidates to these concerns uh the profession is riding on it in a lot of ways yeah i mean the cost is teacher turnover it's a socialization process of you know going to a community that you're not set up to succeed in you you are not culturally competent you go in and try to push your culture on to another culture or you don't understand or you can't relate to your students you start thinking of this dream job that you've had. You spent four or five years in college becoming a PE teacher, and then you go in and you go, wow, I hate PE teaching. Well, you hate PE teaching in that context because you haven't done the work to understand your students, right? And so I think that those are, and Clancy, you brought up a great point, like that is the issue of teacher turnover. Like a lot of times our least prepared students go to schools that they are most needed in and they are confronted with some issues that they haven't learned how to navigate and they give one year, two years and they go, man, this teaching is not for me. And I think that's on us. That's on Pete educators. We did not, Mm -hmm. you know, expose our students to Title I schools, to, you know, classes about you know, social cultural issues and education and things that they can actually, and it's not enough to read books. It's, you have to go in and experience living and working in a community to understand, you know, all of the different things that come up to it. Um, I, I'd, I want to go back to something, Harry, that you said that was really interesting. You talked about there's this huge anti-bullying campaign. And I think anybody in middle school or elementary school, like, I would say every school has some sort of awareness for anti-bullying these days. And it goes to cyberbullying and all the stuff. But I wonder how much resistance certain schools would give if all of a sudden we switched that and said, all right, for the next year, it's an anti-racism campaign. And doing that at the elementary... Because, look, little kids totally understand the meaning, like the importance of like, you can't bully people. Now it still happens, but there's so much awareness of it now. But that was because there's an anti-bullying campaign that was nationwide. So do you think that, let's say in a norm, like a local school in your area, would you think that if there isn't already like a huge push for anti-racism at the level of anti-bullying, would that be accepted? What do you think, Harry? I think that's a I think that's a tough one to be to be completely fair. I think that um, it's needed for sure, um, but 
it would be hard, I think, for some teachers to carry it out. And I got this perspective actually from my mentor teacher. Um, I was talking to him about the book a little bit. He he was a uh, Buffalo public school teacher for a few years um, before he got his, his current um, job teaching health. Um, but he said that, um, you know, he when he went to his, his new school, Eden High School, he was a, it was a more predominantly white um, school. And he said that him being in Buffalo Public for a few years really taught him different perspective and it taught him um, to not be afraid to bring up issues of race. So then when he, when it, when it happens at his new school, it's fine. He said he was, he's, you know, one of the main ones that is comfortable with it. And I think that that's a great perspective to have. But I think that if you as a teacher don't have that perspective, just like what Dr. Seymour was talking about, you got, you, you, you got to experience those, um, I think that it would be hard to um, really help educate students if you first aren't fully, you know, aware perceptually and, you know, personally and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I needed a lot of coaching and support to get comfortable having this conversation. Like, you're, you kind of have this slow build. You're not just going to, like, overnight you're going to read this book and you're just going to be like i'm going to become an anti-racist educator and i'm going to go into my first class tomorrow and just talk about it i felt very uncomfortable talking about race and you know i had a lot of peers a lot of colleagues white multiracial whatever that said look like if you don't have that conversation who's going to have that conversation if you are the instructor of record on this course whether it's a PE class that you are teaching sixth grade, if you are white, that's just that's just the cards that were dealt. You are a white educator teaching in this class, and if you refuse to bring this up, who's going to bring that up? It's not like there's another person that's just going to get hired to discuss this. It's up to us, and I think that you know having conversations like this is is one small step, right? But it's an important step being open, talking about these issues, explaining our points of view. But I, and I do see that there might be critics of saying, well, why do you have a book club on this issue with all white people? Like, why didn't you invite somebody else in? And I feel like, you know, she talked about this in the book as well, of having, being in a community like, and it's okay right. to talk about this in an all white community, right? It's right. helpful to have other people in that room, but it's also okay to have this conversation. And I, and I remember we did a podcast. Uh, we recorded it at Adelphi University when we were at the ISEP conference, and it was uh, four white teacher educators. And we the topic was how to talk about race when you identify as white in the peak classroom. And I remember mm -hmm. a couple of my colleagues were like it's just a little off. Like, why are you talking about it in this context? Like, why didn't you bring on another person, uh, like a person of color? There's a lot of scholars that, you know, could have been in that room to have that conversation. And I, I like th that when I read this book, it kind of validated, it said, it's okay, because you're doing the work, you're, you're starting the conversation. And it's prepping you to you know, be open about having these issues. And um, so, I don't know, I, do you have any thoughts on that of kind of having this conversation in, in a very homogenous group? 
Well, uh, Risto, you're right on. I think um, I think uh, she she uh, the author ends the chapter or begins the chapter with the uh, with being at a school district for PD or something and an announcement of a uh, of a, a person of color breakfast or something and then uh, you know being announced at a certain time and then uh, someone at the PD saying how would how would people feel if there was a a white breakfast, um, and the author uh, quite frankly said that I, she would encourage it, uh, and I think that speaks to what you're referring to, the idea that um, uh, for a long time people of color have been uh, the other, uh, the, the one and the two in, in a room full of white, uh, and so they've, they've experienced that awkwardness quite a bit, and uh, so we, while we uh, are just starting to now experience that that uncomfortability and we can learn from it as Harry pointed out. Um, it, it seems as though the author encourages uh, people of color to get together because they have experienced the plight, right? But they all, but she also encourages people, uh, you know, white people to get together and folks to discuss these issues so that um, it's a starting point, like you said. And, and, you know, the other thing that she references is that we're all going to make mistakes. Heck, we, you know, we, maybe we made mistakes today and, and, and I think recognizing our mistakes, apologizing for our mistakes, and learning and getting better, uh, that's what it comes down to. Um, so, yeah, I, I, again, I was triggered by the same points. For sure. yeah. uh, let's talk about, and I think, you know, kind of starting to wrap this up, I, I think one of the things that we haven't discussed is the colorblind racial ideology, um, which, you know, the book talks about that some of the scholars talk about this as the dominant racial ideology of contemporary America. It's this idea of white people deny or minimize the degree of racial inequality as a result of factors unrelated to racial dynamics, such as black cultural values or economic forces unrelated to race. So it was interesting to me to read that because that's how I was brought up in like, when I moved to the US in middle school, it's like, you're colorblind. You don't see race. And, and I think that was a very predominant education system that a lot of us who went to public school in the U.S. learned. It's like you don't see race. You only see a person. You see a smile, whatever it is. And, you know, the book challenges this idea. And I think that there's a lot of scholars that have challenged this idea of uh, colorblind as being problematic. And she calls it color evasion this idea of I don't see race and it minimizes the fact that white and black people have different experiences and they, she put three things. One, it falsely perpetuates the myth of equal access. Two, it blames people of color for their lot in life. And three, it allows whites to live in this naive ignorance and uh, innocence. And I thought that that was a really good way to explain why colorblind ideologies are not, are not something that we should be reinforcing. Because the problem is, if you just say, hey, I don't see race, you're like, well, this person had a very different experience in life because of their race, because of people who treat them differently. And if you look at colorblind society, and if you look at it that way, then you just kind of say, well, you're not valued. And I think it goes back to this idea of the topic of the book. Why are, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? It's because those students who are in that community together, they can 
they can understand, they can relate to one another. And that the conversation that they had was, so the, you know, uh, a black girl who is going to school has a white teacher and the white teacher says something racist or says like, hey, community college is for you. I don't think you're for your university material, even though that they are a tremendously good student. And when that black kid goes up to a white friend and says, hey, you know, Mr. Smith said this to me, I feel it's incredibly racist. The white kid has been learned to like look at colorblind society and they go, oh, I don't think that's what he meant. And so the black student is like, well, that's exactly what they meant. When they go up to another black student, they have a conversation. They go, I've been there too. Let me talk about my experience. Talk to me. Let me listen. So they go, they see this student that they used to be really good friends with when they are having their racial awakening in schools. They see the student that they used to be close with that no longer understands their experience. And so they gravitate to people who understand or listen or can be empathetic. So it's not that all the black people and all the white people and all the Latinx people and so on and so forth have to sit in different areas. It's for us as educators to go up and say, hey, here's how to be empathetic. Like, let's teach you about race and racism. Let's teach you how to be anti-racist. And so I just found that as, as a really powerful explanation of the title of the book and it clicked with me. It 100% started making sense, uh, sense to me, um, when I read that, but I'm, I'm wondering what your kind of thoughts, like kind of final thoughts about this, like colorblind society or that kind of thinking of, you know, or even going back to the topic of the book. So, uh, let me, let me start with you, Harry. What do you, what do you think on that? Sure. Um, I think that um, the the colorblind issue is um, is is definitely you know one that we don't always talk about because me being white, growing up white, white predominantly across the board, I wasn't like you know taught like you know you shouldn't see race, but it was kind of just like a little you know like you know, what's the word like a little like like you should just like it was just assumed mm-hmm. to try not to do that, but I think that. Um, what, I mean, the whole overarching issue is more of a, I just, I wrote down in my, in my little notes here, uh, like a, a mosaic versus a melting pot, you know, America versus Canada's way of thinking about issues. I mean, I'm a, I'm half Canadian. My dad's from Dundas, Ontario. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my, my Canadian side, but the mosaic there. And I think that that really means to me that, you know, Canadians see different cultures as celebrating those cultures for who they are. And America is more of the melting pot where no, where, no matter where you come from, now you're American. Um, and I remember learning about in school, these um, Americanization schools where they would teach you, teach new immigrants or people, you know, Native Americans, they teach you how to be American, you know, how to, how to wear a three-piece suit, pocket watch, and all that kind of stuff. And obviously that stuff, those schools aren't happening now, but it's still kind of the notion of, Hey, you're here, so time to buy your house, go like picket fence, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that um, the the melting pot almost is perpetuating that colorblind um, issue. That just we're all American, and that and you know we all should just be American. I think that what it means to be American is kind of is is changing. I mean, we've had obviously a long period of well, the whole nation is really immigrants, 
Um, but I think that we are seeing a new sort of um, immigration style where people are coming over and people are here and we have to um, appreciate all of them. Mm -hmm. I think that um, in order to progress, we have to start seeing it that way. Yeah. And there's a there's a big push for assimilation in certain certain communities in the U.S. And some people in those certain communities will also, you know, you know, admonish the Chinese for forcibly, you know, teaching the Uyghurs in in remote like areas to become more nationalistic, to become more Chinese, to stop talking about certain things. And I think that that is a great analogy of the mosaic versus the melting pot. And I think, you know, people who talk about social justice, race, anti-racism, they talk about a, a salad bowl, like a mixed salad bowl. Uh, so there are different ideologies. But I do think that that is still prevalent, that melting pot. And if you go in and you grow up in a community that's colorblind and they talk about this, we're a melting pot. We're all the same. It's OK. Right. Um, Clancy, um, kind of final thoughts or, or considerations? Yeah, uh, you know, hard. Uh, Harry captured it really well. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, uh, hands up here, full disclosure. Uh, you know, I've been a teacher educator now for 20, 20 years, 20 plus years. And, uh, you know, I, I, and earlier in my career, I, I, I used that approach of see no color. And I learned quickly uh, that, uh, what we what we chatted about earlier, uh, the author captures it nicely, but I believe it goes one step further. It, it, a see no color philosophy or ideology is 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 um, is it's back to using white. It's back to using white as the measuring stick, and it's uh, the idea that oh well, we'll, ta- we'll we'll just consider you we'll just consider you white, and then that, that that's the way to do it. And I and I think that's probably obviously problematic for many reasons, and I do agree with Harry uh, the, or the mosaic, or as you mentioned, the salad analogy, I talk about it all the time, a, a, you know, a pluralistic uh, approach, the idea that we celebrate difference. Uh, you know, I think that's important uh, to recognize. And, you know, Canada, I'm a proud uh, Canuck myself, Harry, and, and, you know, we do some, we do some great things in, in Canada for sure when it comes to social issues, but we have, we have a checkered past too, when it comes to native Americans and, Asian, or, yeah, well, known first people called in Canada, or or uh, Asian uh, people as well. We have a checkered history as well when it comes to some of these issues. So uh, we still have a long way to go. Um, but nevertheless, um, I, and I think you mentioned about uh, the idea of the black children sitting together in the cafeteria because many times they are ostracized. They are the ones looked at in the classroom because they're the ones and twos in the classroom. So they. They can identify. They now have an opportunity to talk and identify with these issues. It's not. It's a thing that really, that I think resonates, and I and I I, I hope people read this book because just because the the black children are sitting together, it's not because they they're anti-white. It's not about that. It's about the fact that they're having an opportunity to network and and and, and get through some of these issues that we again uh, just take for granted. Uh, so I think that's uh, the key to to all this. And I think the author talks about this social identity, the idea that this really starts in middle school and social identity theory in middle school and onwards. You know, the young child doesn't see this as much, uh, doesn't understand it as much. Uh, so 
the, the book is riveting and I'm grateful, uh, Risto, that you put this together. And I think it's a great starting point. Absolutely. And I think the starting point is, is exactly where I would say. Um, so let me, let me end with a couple quotes that I put down. We may not have polluted the air, but we need to work together to fix it and clean it up. And the other one is, we must break the cycle. Prejudice is not your fault, but it's your responsibility to reflect on it and fix it. Unless we consciously reflect on ourselves, we easily repeat the process with our students. We teach what we have been taught. So Clancy, Harry, this has been an honor. Uh, I really appreciate sharing this space with you. Um, for the listeners, I, I really hope this conversation either urges you to read the book yourself, I highly recommend it, um, or better yet, continue this conversation if you read that book. Um, you know, we, we definitely didn't cover everything on the, on the podcast, um, but I guess that's kind of what book clubs are. It's, it's a beginning to a conversation that we can continue down the line. So Harry and Clancy, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us, Risto. Thank you very much. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.